yeah, I know that I'm not normal anymore and my life is more difficult, but I still have power to do something. I still have power to change something. Maybe I can change this picture for disability people. Maybe I can give a person a hope after his accident. That's the vital thing. I think that's like the the core mission is just raising awareness and you know making sure that, that people know and disabled people are not just disabled. They are differently abled. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. Today's episode of the podcast brings you the stories of two incredible young women, Nujin and Marwa. I was introduced to them both through Humanity and Inclusion, a charity who supports people with disabilities who are also affected by poverty, conflict and disaster. So basically, imagine having to flee your country, that's bad enough already, but then also to have the added impact of a physical disability. That's the reality for Nujin and Marwa. Both from Syria, both wheelchair users, these two women have overcome so many layers of adversity. First, let's hear from Nujin, who was born with cerebral palsy. After leaving Syria, aged 16, to escape ISIS, she made the 3,500-mile journey to Germany in her wheelchair. She has since gone on to give a TED Talk, co-write two books, and become the first disabled person to brief the United Nations Security Council and she's still only 21. Nujin sees the fantastical in everything, and I loved her instantly. Here's our conversation, which started by me asking her how she was doing. I'm doing fine. I'm doing splendid, I think, uh, you know, considering the circumstances. School is starting on Monday again, and I'm kind of excited. What I've been doing in quarantine is just a plenty of reading. Not much of, you know, physical reading, but a lot of listening because I'm not known for my patient. So I just buy off Audible. I love Audible. Yeah, I love Audible. I feel like it's a great way to listen or to read more books is to listen to them whilst you're doing something else as well, right? And it it just has a very nostalgic feeling to it. Like your older sibling or mom reading to you when you were younger. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Like a bedtime story. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's basically sums up the last, like, four months. 
I did a little bit of research before this because I'm just absolutely amazed by your story. And I read that reading is a common theme from the beginning, right? That even as a child, you loved reading. Yeah, uh, I loved it because I didn't have much space to explore. Going outdoors was not much of an option. When I was younger, I mm. lived in a 50 floor apartment with no lift in the building. So it was like you couldn't go up and down. So reading was the window to, you know, the world that I couldn't experience. Mm-hmm. I just loved it. And even now, as my interests have evolved, I still love being in people's heads, love having that connection with someone I'm very curious about people in general, but I will never have that insight or that access to their deepest, darkest thought or dreams or whatever. In some ways, I try to feed that hunger through reading, which is just, you know, get to experience different types of people, even people that I wouldn't want to meet in real life mm-hmm. become my favorite in fiction. That's the thing about reading, which is just, it did its job for me in that it allowed me to mentally get out of my own skin, you know, just put myself in some, somebody else's shoes and try to experience life through their eyes. Let's actually talk about that a little bit more because I'd love to have more of an insight into what your life growing up in Syria with cerebral palsy was like. I'll just start from the beginning. Yeah, start so, from the uh, beginning. Uh, Tell me the, the whole uh, story. I'll sit back and get comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> I was born with cerebral palsy. I got kind of diagnosed at about six, six months old. The family didn't notice until I was about that age because they noticed that I didn't sit properly as opposed to my peers who were the same age. I'm actually from Kobani, the city that was attacked by ISIS a few years ago. But we decided to move to Aleppo so that my siblings could, could get into college and I could get proper medical treatment or we could check out our options, uh, what we could do some physical therapy or some other means to you know, improve the condition. It didn't pan out as we imagined. We got an apartment in the, the, you know, in the, on the fifth floor and the infrastructure in Syria is not, is not accessible. Like transportation, you know, people with disabilities are often not taken into account. So uh, <laughs> that made it harder to get, get out of the house. As I got older, it was harder for my older siblings to, to carry me. So I was grounded. How could we get around that was I was about six or seven when my siblings started teaching me reading and writing in Arabic. And I just fell in love with it. And then they left me to my own devices. So I used the TV to continue that to build on it. There was always this running joke in the family that I that I speak like TV presenters because <laughs> that's what I was used to. As I grew older, the only occasion I would go out on, I would be outdoors on, was the Nowruz festival, which is the Persian New Year, which we Kurds also celebrate on the 21st of March of each year. That was the kind of the, the environment or the, you know, the space that I grew up in. So the only outlet to the outside world was television and books, which my siblings would buy. I didn't grow up with kids who were of the same age. Mm-hmm. I grew up with the adults in my family. I didn't feel really comfortable with children of my own age because I would feel the judgment. And, 
you know, sense that I was considered the weakling in the in the group, even if I was playing and being active and all that. And I absolutely despised it. Growing up, I absolutely hated meeting people that I didn't know for the first time because there would be a recount of the story of my birth and mm-hmm. how it was discovered that I couldn't walk and uh, how I am, I'm, you know, I'm normal despite that, which, which I just hated because, uh, yeah, because they were compensating for my disability as if it was a kind of character flaw and I didn't like it much. So you felt like there was a lot of focus on your disability when you were young? There was a focus from strangers, not from my family. From my family, I was like the spoiled youngest child. You know, I would get reprimanded a lot because I used to play with my elder siblings' phones and, you know, play snake on them. (laughs) I used to love snake. Yeah, I I loved it. Like every 2000s kid knows that. It's just the best. How many kids in your family? We are nine in total. Wow. Okay. So (laughs) lots of you. Yeah. I'm the oldest of eight. Oh. (laughs) I'm at the other end though. They all have to listen to me. (laughs) Yeah. But you get to be in charge of everyone else and everyone has to respect and listen to you. That's how I like to think of it. It doesn't always work though. Yeah. And because of that challenge, because of my desire to change that, uh, to challenge the perception of the helpless disabled person, I decided to enrich myself through knowledge. So I would, you know, pick up a lot of trivia, dig very deep into topics that I found interesting, read every book that I could, you know, get my hands on. That was the, the main focus I had when growing up, which is just try to shatter that image break the bar of expectation and 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 show everyone that you could fit their description of normal in that way absolutely yeah so you were exceeding expectation constantly basically i was challenging myself to to exceed it and i simultaneously wanted to be perceived as someone who could achieve and accomplish things goals but that was also just for me, just for me to feel like I'm like I'm active in my own life, like I'm not a bystander in my own life story. Nugene, can you just give me a little bit of an overview of what it means to have cerebral palsy? Because obviously I understand that you're wheelchair bound, but is there any other limitations? I don't have excellent motor skills, so I could hold a pen comfortably, but I wouldn't be able to wield an axe or <laughs> fix something. I don't think um, I'd be able to do that either, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> Generally, it's not a huge problem. It's just that I don't have a safe sense of the balance in my own body. Mm-hmm. So I'm usually afraid of falling over all the time. When there is a lot of adrenaline, I find it hard to control my feet would kick like, as if I'm kicking a football. I just kind of find it hard sometimes to control the, you know, the movement of the muscle or the, you know, the command that I could give to it. It would be obeying my emotion, not my rational thought. If I'm nervous or afraid. That's really fascinating. And actually, I don't know much about it. Does it come from trauma in the womb? Is there any kind of causes that you know? Well, I was born prematurely, so um, that could be that could be a factor. 
And my mom was over 40 when she had me. She naturally has a very high blood pressure. So she used to take some medicines during her pregnancy. I don't know if that could be a factor, but I would mostly contribute to being born prematurely. I was 40 days early, so I would presume that it's the main cause. I'm fascinated also to hear about what happened when war broke out in Syria and you began that journey. Maybe we can go back to that time. How old were you when the war broke out? I was 13. When it happened, it it happened very quickly and swiftly. Our last week in Aleppo, you know, we didn't sleep. You know, there would be bombing and air raids on the neighborhood next to us and all around. We were terrified. What tipped the scale in favor of just leaving the country was ISIS. Mm -hmm. Life became very suffocating. Of course, my parents at the time were like reluctant to leaving their homeland because we were young. But how you ask, ask an older person to just reset and restart his whole life and you know leave everything he's ever known behind? My brother would use those arguments just to convince him that we already like we are drained of life. We already look like zombies, the Walking Dead. We are living with that anxiety and anxiousness and uncertainty of what's what's going to happen tomorrow. Eventually, we left to Turkey in, in in the beginning of 2014. Once we were out there, I was kind of you know longing for for some stability, for some war-free days and war-free life. I was thrilled that there would be no more power outage because it would mean that I could, you know, watch all my favorite shows without interruption, without 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 having to miss any. <laughs> so, so you were actually quite excited about leaving Syria because I knew that it was monumental and that I would not return for a very long time. I kind of subconsciously knew it, but. You know, there was no option left for me. And if I wanted to stay, it was either stay and die or live like the dead. Life that is filled with fear isn't, it's not a life at all. Like, you don't experience the full range of emotion. If you're afraid that you're going to die tomorrow, what kind of life is that? Of course, you could still die tomorrow, but to always be expecting death is no life at all. In Turkey, at first, we were just kind of happy to be out of our war region and happy that we've reached a safe location where we could try to start and rebuild the semblance, you know, of our lives. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that dissimilar to Syria when it comes to accessibility and awareness about disability rights and education and just, uh, you know, the, the basic, the basic human rights that every, that should be afforded every human being. So you got to Turkey and life there was not really that much easier for you in terms of your disability. It wasn't easier for any of us. Learning the language was hard and you couldn't realistically find a job there. It kind of felt like we were like some kind of unwelcome guests. We were kind of frozen in in the sense that we, we can go forward in life. My sister was about to graduate college when she left Syria, but she couldn't resume her studies in Turkey. My brother had a job before he left and he couldn't find another one. We tried to do the best we could with all of that, but, but it just wasn't working. We were kind of frozen when it came to you know, our own growth as a family and our own sense of purpose and our own sense that we were building back our lives. 
a sense of having survived and getting the chance to start again. Mm-hmm. So when the the opportunity presented itself to when the borders opened in, in 2015, my sister was hammering on my parents' heads to let her and me cross that road. We just kept going on, going on at it until they just said, go for it. But that's fine, just go for it if you want to. They had their inhibitions about sending two, two of their girls to a foreign country. I can imagine. Must have been a scary and difficult decision to make, right? Yeah, and, and and especially me, that I was kind of in that protected bubble. You know, they kind of thought, you know, I was I was the little girl, the baby. I, yeah, yeah, and I was, kind of, and I always had to be sheltered in some way. We decided to just go for it and do that and cross the borders between Turkey and Greece in a dinghy boat. Were you scared, Eugene? Were you scared to embark on that journey? How did you feel? I guess I didn't believe that it could happen until it did, until I was sure that, you know, we were, we were actually setting off on that road. And I was mostly excited because, you know, that was the first time that I was going to go on a big scale tour, you know, not a tour, but, you know, a journey. A big scale. Basically, out, outdoors journey. So it was the long time I'd been outdoors since I was like, since I was like seven. <laughs> so it had a different feeling to it. Of course, I subconsciously knew that it was be dangerous and difficult, but I decided not to think about it that, that way because if I kept thinking that I couldn't do it, then I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I believe that. I believe that too. You couldn't predict what you could do until you try. Me and my sister and all of us believed that we deserved this chance because it was, you know, our right to have a new life, and it's our, it was our right, to, you know, to strive for more than safety and and shelter and, and food and drink. You know, it was our right to for a better future. So back to the boat, I read that you said that that boat journey crossing from Turkey to Greece in a dinghy was not sailing into the sunset as you had imagined, right? <laughs> no, it's funny because I had many of my first times during that journey. So it was the first time I'd ever been on a plane, on a train, on an escalator. It was my first time on a ferry and it was my first time on a boat. It was the first time I'd seen the sea. It wasn't for a, a, you know, dreamy, like, perfect vacation. It was a journey that could be the last one I ever make. Either a new life or a watery grave in some way. Of course, I recognize that it wasn't fair that, you know, none of us should have had to go through that to reach safety or reach a place where they could help for a stable and um, happy and successful life. But, you know, but I had recognized a long time ago that, you know, the world wasn't fair and, you know, that it had to be. On that day, actually, it was the same day that the body of that you know, little boy washed up to the shore. Alan Cardi. Yeah. We found out about that after we had, you know, we we'd reached Greece. Wow. It hit me that, it could, you know, that it could have been us and, and, it, and it wasn't. You know, the only solace that I, could, that I could take from that case was that I think he was in, in a much better, in a much better, less cruel place for children his age. 
that his soul was at peace now. We arrived in Greece and stayed there, stayed there for weeks. The main camp was not accessible as well. It was just tents. Gravel was terrible for a wheelchair. It was just not accessible. It was a very hard time for me, but it, but, but, it also, but it was also very encouraging in some way because finally I had the chance, chance to use my English that I had learned at home. And I kind of became the interpreter for the group. <laughs> and it was... So um, cool. I remember a particular instance where a woman in the camp was also Kurdish. Her daughter had a kidney condition and she asked me to translate to the nurse in the camp that she needed a medication uh, for her daughter and I did that and it just and it, it was just the best feeling ever to be able to to help her uh, to help someone in need I wanted to feel like I achieved something that I you could be in service yes yeah give me a sense of purpose we stayed in that camp for a week. It was very close to the airport, so we would hear airplanes, airplanes taking off all the time, which was an effective treatment for any noise-related trauma that I might have developed you know, during my time in Syria. So I kind of readjusted or re- relearned that you know um, a plane wouldn't you know wouldn't be dropping dropping bombs, and that was pretty beneficial as well. I didn't want to flinch every time a loud noise erupted. I still, I still do sometimes, but that's just from the fact that I'm very jittery and very <laughs> nervous by nature. So your sister essentially pushed you that whole yeah. journey, right? Yeah, of like 3,500 miles. That's why she miles. has very strong muscles. <laughs> I bet she's got some proper guns. <laughs> yeah. I was also pushed and pulled by everyone because the terrain on the terrain on the, on the borders was not at all suitable for wheelchairs so I would be pushed by all the men in the group or or even strangers would, would carry my wheelchair if it was if, it, if, it, if the hedge was too high or something it was kind of um, there was a spirit of camaraderie among us among all of us that's so beautiful so every, everybody helped each other they, they weren't even always Syrian people from Pakistan or Afghanistan or that we could still maintain the spirit of being helpful to others despite having gone through hell ourselves. So did you walk all the way to Germany? Well, I was sitting down on a wheelchair. <laughs> there were some benefits to having a wheelchair. There was a ferry that took us to Athens. Mm-hmm. And then we would go to by train to the Macedonian borders. We crossed the borders and then it was... From Macedonia to, uh, to Serbia, there was a lot of boarding trains and boarding buses. Even in our sleep, we were always on the road in some ways. And um, the next plan was just to go to Slovenia and from there to Austria and then to Germany. In Austria, I just remember thinking of Heidi at the time because it was like the Alps. You know, that was the mental image that I had mm-hmm. of that part of Europe. And I actually remember learning my first German word there, the word for blanket, decal. Nice. We stayed in the camp for a while there. Did you feel like you were in a book, sort in a film? <laughs> oh, but but I, I couldn't guarantee my own survival. I would have considered a book if I knew that 
if, if I was sure at the time that, you know, I would get to my destination. But there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot that could go wrong. And there was a lot of possibilities and that were and not at all positive. Looking back at it now, I mean, I did write all that in a book. So I could say that it did end up being a, being a book with its own open-ended conclusion. With you as the ultimate heroine. And I want to talk to you about that, actually. So let's get to Germany on the journey yeah. and uh, tell me about life once you made it there. Yeah. So what happened was that we were walking. <laughs> I was being rolled. And there would be like a writing in chalk uh, on the ground, like writing Germany and, and, and arrows and everything guiding you to the, you know, to wow. the point where you... And who had done that? Was that refugees before you or was that local people? I presume there was other refugees like trying to guide others. <laughs> but it, was, but it had felt very Hansel and Gretel, Gretel-like. Um, wow. It reminded me of that, of that tale as, as Germany was home and we were trying to get there. I was kind of conflicted about it because that, that meant that the journey in itself was over then and that I wouldn't be having breakfast in Serbia and having like, lunch in Croatia. It was like the end of a big adventure. Yeah, but it was surreal. I mean, yeah, it, was, it, it did have a feeling of we did it. We managed to get there. Once Nugene and her sister made it to Germany, they were picked up by a bus to be taken somewhere to be processed. All, all the way from where the bus picked us up, I was thinking, okay, one day I will be, you know, be speaking like these guys. I didn't understand a word of what they said, of course, but uh, there would be one day where I would adopt their customs and their mannerisms and their culture and speak their language and understand them. So I was thinking of all that and how... An older version of me would would be like. How's your German now, Nugene? It's advanced, but not as fluent as my English. I could confirm that I turned into the person that I'd imagined. And more, right? Because since you've been in Germany, you've achieved so much. And I want to talk a little bit about what's happened, yes, since you made it. Well, I was underage when I arrived. I was 16, so I got an official guardian because my parents were not there. She enrolled me in school. I attended my first day of school ever on the 30th of November 2015. The first few weeks, it was only communication with the teachers because I didn't understand what my classmates were saying. (laughs) But school was actually very considerate. So I I was seated between someone from Jordan and someone who was half American, half English. So you could speak Arabic and English. Yeah. About three months in, I was able to comfortably communicate with my classmates. Wow. I would say that, you know, it happened pretty quickly. I graduated and started attending um, a vocational college for business and administration. I also got the equivalent of GCSEs. Mm -hmm. So I would say that I'm doing fairly well academically attending school and having the regular life of a young person or a teenager in in another country that was what was expected but the other life that I'm leading was the the surprise that was hidden so ever since I did my first interview and attracted all that media attention I, I didn't think of it as much I didn't 
imagine how this person in a wheelchair who's going through that journey would was you know would look like to other people i didn't imagine how people how it would be perceived for me it was just natural i mean you know i believe that i had every art the same as others i mean why would anyone expect that a person with disability wouldn't want to go to a place of safety or immigrate to a country where he had better chances building and succeeding at life and so i was kind of surprised and kind of shocked and then found it a bit disappointing that everyone would would, would would just would throw me curious glances like they would be shocked that some a family had brought uh, brought along a disabled member did they expect my family to leave me behind don't you think it was more shock that you had made the journey and that it was so brave of you not that they expected you to be, to stay behind but the fact that you no, did it but i think it still shows the underlying assumption that or lack of expect, you know, the yeah. the la- lack of understanding that even disabled people would want to immigrate. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Yeah. Why would your yeah. dreams and goals and passions be any different? Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing I've been I've been faced with my entire life, which is the bar is set so low for people with disabilities that people that I meet for the first time they would be so shocked that I have this aura or this I give this feeling of okay of normalcy that I have ambitions and dreams and I, mm. and that I have phobias or that I speak English or I'm comfortable in social situations okay that's good for me that's another challenge to overcome another person to impress or show that it you know that his presumptions and prejudgments were wrong mm-hmm. that's been the kind of the core message about the different parts of my identity ever since writing the book and even doing all that kind of activism for people with disabilities and for refugees ever since I've arrived here is shattering that stereotypical image of what you would uh, expect from a person with disability. So it, it was just about breaking that cycle of... Unpicking that prejudice. It was about showing the world and, you know, the public that people with disabilities were much more than the disability that they have. Of course, it's a part of their identity and they kind of live with it, but it does not determine who they can become or what they can do. The same goes for an immigrant who actually should be perceived or seen in a, um, or viewed in an entirely different way because if someone has put himself and his, and his family in danger and left everything, everything behind, that shows that this person has drive and they want to contribute. So they want to build a new, a new life. They want to be something more. They want to be survivors, not victims of their circumstances. The main message is just like when it comes to immigration and how it is interpreted, you know, and how, how it is viewed and seen by by, by hosting countries as, as, it, as opposed to what it actually is. I did not choose to come here. I had to. <laughs> These countries that you hear about in the news, about the violence and the war and the tragedy and the misery, they have their culture, they have their history. They, they, all these people, they had jobs. They had qualifications. They were proud people. They were full of humor. The cuisine was rich. They were full of energy. They are still a resource. So it's not. It's not about. As I said, it's about you know kind of eliminating that any kind of victim mentality that the public may have of 
uh, as a perception of both uh, of both groups. So, disabled people are not just disabled; they are differently abled. I think it's probably important to talk about everything that you've achieved in Germany. So you've written two books. You have been the first ever disabled person to brief the UN Security Council. I mean, it, the list goes on. It's absolutely incredible everything that you've done in the last few yeah. years. So tell me a little bit about that and how that's felt. Yeah, about being the first person with disability to brief the Security Council, I think it was a very nerve-wracking experience. I bet. I wanted them to know that they hadn't done their job well when it comes to the protection of people with disabilities in regions of conflict. Mm-hmm. I worked with lots of uh, wonderful NGOs. Together we crafted this speech that was as inclusive uh, as possible of everyone that, we, um, everyone that we thought needed this story to be told. I wanted them to know that, that they had neglected their duty of protecting this particular group. So it was such a huge responsibility. And I was thrilled when the, when the resolution on the protection of people with disabilities, I actually did, did the speech or did the briefing in April 2019 and it was adopted in June. Wow. So, so, so chances are you had a big role to play in that, basically. It was actually mentioned in the statement that accompanied the announcement of the resolution. So I, I still consider it one of my biggest achievements, but as something that I would be proud of for the rest of my life. You should be. So the writing of the book was my attempt at giving people in Europe um, an insight into the life of a disabled person, the life of a person with disability in, in Syria, and also, of course, just a glimpse into why Syria is at the point where it is now and what happened and why it happened. That was another huge responsibility that I hope I've, I've fulfilled or did justice to. To this day, I still receive messages on social, social media saying that they have read the book and loved it and that they now have a, con- con- a completely different view or opinion and perspective on refugees and all people with disabilities. That's all that I had hoped to achieve through that, through the book, showing everyone that, that we had so much in common that I also fangirl about my favorite TV show. So <laughs> that I, I'm a big fan of football. I just wanted to show that we should be celebrating our differences and appreciating what we have in common instead of fighting over over it. That's what I, what I hope to have achieved. Well, you really did achieve that. The fight for the rights to inclusion and education and every human right for people with disabilities will never be over. And I think that I would be involved in for the rest of my life. The last thing I want to ask you about, Nujin, is that I understand that you left Turkey with your sister and left your parents there, right? Um, final question, how long have you not seen them for? And maybe you can talk to me a little bit about that, about your family situation now. My father passed away last December and um, by that time I hadn't seen him for five uh, years. I'm sorry Um, to hear that. Thank you. (laughs) My mom is still there. Uh, We're praying that when everything loosens up and there are less restrictions on travel, that we could try to get her to come over and uh, family reunification. Mm -hmm. It has not been easy, of course. 
being separated from them, you know, and and losing my dad like that. Because I grieve for him even now. It's, it's still fresh, but more than anything, I want, you know, I want to make him proud. And, you know, that would, that would require me to, you know, get up and continue being, you know, continue doing what I do. As for my mom, I hope to be um, reunited with her as soon as possible. That's all I could hope for for the future. Well, Nujeen, honestly, I don't think that you could be doing any more to make them both extremely, extremely proud. You're incredible. And I appreciate you so much for sharing this story with me today. I wish I could give you a big hug if we were in person and it wasn't <laughs> COVID, then I definitely would. And it's just been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I hope that we do meet in person one day. Me too. That was my conversation with the absolutely inspirational Nujeen Mustafa. I didn't think that anyone would come close to so beautifully sharing their experience of displacement with a disability. And then I met my next guest, Marwa Mabayed. Marwa was 24 years old when she was in a car accident in Syria as a result of weapons being shot on the highway. She was immediately paralysed from the waist down and she too now lives in Germany. Marwa and I are the same age, and throughout this conversation, I was hit with a strong reminder that anything could happen at any moment to change the course of our lives forever, and that much of that is out of our control. But what is within our control is how we deal with it, and Marwa sets a shining example to us all. I hope you enjoy our conversation. How are you doing today? How are you? I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm living now in Germany, in Heidelberg. Oh, in Heidelberg! Yeah. When I was in year nine, like when I was maybe 13, I went on a German exchange to Heidelberg. I remember being like, wow, I love it here. It's like something out yeah, of a exactly. film. <laughs> it's really an amazing city. I, I love it so much. How long have you been in Germany? Three and a half years now. So I guess let's start from the beginning. You grew up in Syria, right? Yep. Damascus. And... When did things start to change for you? It sounds to me like you had a pretty normal life, a pretty normal upbringing until the war, right? That's right. I was like a normal person going to my university and going to my work, to my job. So I used to work as a social uh, worker. I did this for years. Mm -hmm. And then my accident happened. My accident happened in 2015. When it's happened, the same second, I know that I, I couldn't walk anymore. And that moment that was start to everything change. Not just the war, no, everything in my life was starting to change. So you knew straight away in that moment that you wouldn't be able to walk again? Exactly, in the same moment. But I thought maybe it would be better if I go to hospital or if I find a good doctors or therapy, something like this. This is what I thought. But suddenly that was wrong. So what happened? Tell me a little bit more, if, you, if you're happy to, if you want to, about the accident. I was um, at a car with my family. I was sleeping in the car and then I, I don't really be, uh, remember that everything. But what I remember that uh, when the accident happened, I tried to open my eyes, but 
I couldn't. I was uh, still in sleeping. I, I don't know how I can explain this, but I was still sleeping. But I know that the accident, it happened. So all my family, they're going out uh, from the car and they tell me, hey, Marwa, come out. It's dangerous. You should not stay at the car. And I opened my eyes and I said, I, I can't go out, not work to, to stand again. And they didn't understand me. They thought that I'm scared. I just was shocked or something like this, you know. But they didn't understand what exactly I mean. People, they came directly to me and they tried to help me to take me out from the car. And they told me, hey, come on, you can move your legs. I said, I can't. And then he said again, come on, try. And then I tell them, I feel that something happened in my back, in my spinal cord. I thought, I feel that I broke my back. So you should be careful with me. After that, I was uh, waiting to have, um, how can I say this, neutral? An, oper- I don't know how I can an operation? In English. Not operation, uh, the car hospital. What's oh, called this? ambulance? Ambulance, yeah, exactly. It took around one hour to talk me, and then it took like 12 hours to put me in a hospital and the operation. And after 12 hours, of course, I lost my chance and <laughs> everything uh, changed. I lost everything in this 12 hours. So, yeah, that's what happened (laughs) so you believe that in that time because it took so long for them to operate that they missed the opportunity to help you maybe it will be a little bit better so maybe i can stand at least or maybe i can move a little bit my legs or i can see a little bit my legs something like this so yeah this is what i mean that i lost every chance that i could have Wow. I mean, I'm so grateful to you for sharing this story today because it must be difficult to share this story still, right? I think every person who had an accident or something like this, the first, let's say, two years or three years, it will be always difficult to to talk out this situation because in this time you will be just in your sadness days and you will be in your dark place you will not understand what happened to you and you will think about your future how you can be in a wheelchair and you couldn't walk anymore it's completely new things and it's really scary things no one can imagine this that hey in just one second I cannot walk anymore it was difficult to me to just take my time and uh, really understand what happened to me. And of course, it's not easy to talk about it for the first few years, but now I'm, I'm completely fine about it now. I'm, I'm trying to find um, my way, how I can have a normal life again. Very inspiring. And I think you're amazing for that. Thank you. <laughs> so how old were you when the accident happened? Uh, 24. Okay. I was 24 and now I'm 29. We're nearly the same age. <laughs> Tell me why your family or you decided to leave Syria after the accident. Actually, it was uh, the plan that before my accident that I want to leave Syria. I, I don't want to stay in Syria anymore because of the war. Like all uh, people uh, who are living in Syria who start to uh, go to Germany, 
like walking and swimming with this long way. And usually it took like three months to be in Germany, something like this. And that was my plan with my brother to do it one week before the accident happened. So that means I cannot do it anymore and I can't travel in a normal way. Mm-hmm. So my brother, he was first. And after two years, he had a job to let me get a visa. Okay. So he went to Germany first and because of his job, it allowed you a visa to join him in Germany. Yeah, exactly. So then he could apply for like family reunification. Yeah, exactly. Like this. And when I got a visa after two years, so I got it with my mom and we are all of us here. My brother, my mom and me. Oh, so you're all together now. Okay, that makes me happy. And you flew to, to to Germany, right? You didn't have to do the crazy journey across borders. No, no, and... no I, yeah, it was a completely normal flying and flew. Yeah. Good. Thank God for that. Um, you look really different from in your picture. I've only seen one picture of you on your GoFundMe page and you you cut your hair and I really like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. It was always uh, the idea in my mind that I want to do it. I want to shift, complete my hair. But I was always scared uh, in Syria to do it because I know that people, they will not be fine with this. <laughs> or also maybe the whole my family, they will not be fine with this. <laughs> but here I said, like, I will do it. Did you shave <laughs> I, it? I Did you shave it? I shaved it, yeah. How long ago um, was that? Uh, that was the last year. Oh, wow. So it's grown a lot. It's grown quick. No, it's just one year and look how. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. I'd love to hear a little bit more about life in Germany for you. How has it been since you've been there? Well, I think Germany, it's really an amazing country because I really found myself here. Because, you know, after the accident, there is many things that the doctors or the whole community in Syria, they didn't know how this work or they didn't know how they can hold this kind of things if person was walk and now sitting in wheelchairs. So the, the hospitals, the doctors, everything was not really good, not really perfect. So I came to here direct to hospitals because I really want to understand if I can walk again or no. So the first month for me here was like everything new, a new language, and I don't know what I should do, but I always met a really, really nice people here who were really trying to help me. I met physics therapy. Now he's my coach and he really helped me a lot. He teached me how I can go outside with my wheelchair. A lot of new technique for people sitting in wheelchair, how we can transfer into the car or how I can transfer to my bed or if I have stairs, what I should do, how I can go downstairs or upstairs. And that's uh, completely new things for me. I was scared to be outside alone because I don't know what I will do if something happened, if I will fall down from my wheelchair or something like this. And he really teach me everything in just four months. That was really amazing what he did for me. So yeah, I had a lot of help and a lot of nice people here in Germany. And I guess that gives you back 
some freedom, right? Because if you're scared to go out on your own, then I think that's what a lot of people are recognizing now with lockdown, that when you don't have your freedom, it really takes away a lot from you. Yeah. That's completely right. Because it was every time that I need help, I need someone to be with me, my mom, my brother, or my friends. But now I feel I'm free. I can do everything alone. I don't need any help. And that's the perfect way. <laughs> yes, I love that. So I start putting videos uh, in my Facebook or uh, also in my Instagram about it, just to tell people in my country that, hey, you can also do it. Don't give up because I know how much is difficult. I was in your situation and I was in Syria and I know how much is difficult. But now I had the experience. So I want to give you my experience. Everything you've learned. Yeah. And I had a lot of supporting people in, uh, in Facebook, also on Instagram. Then was direct the idea in my mind that I want to change the picture for disability people in this world. Because... Before my accident, I never think about it, actually. I never think that there is a disability people here or how, how they try to do normal things like we did before. I never think about it. And now I understand everything, how I was and how I am now. And I just want to change this picture because usually people, they look at us that, hey, you are poor now, you don't have that kind of power again to do things or something like this. Yeah, I know that I'm, I'm not normal anymore and my life, it's more difficult, but I can do something. I still have power to do something. I still have power to change something. Maybe I can change this picture for disability people. Maybe I can give a person a hope after his accident that... It's okay. It's, I could not say that it's okay to have accidents. Of course, it's the best things in this life. But you, you can do it. You can find your way. You can find your solution to be, again, how you are. It's a fine to, to have your sadness day again. It's fine to have your dark place. It's fine to, to think uh, that you want to, to kill yourself. It's normal to think about a uh, commuting uh, suicide. Suicide. But just don't, don't give up. You will find your solution. Take your time. Maybe it will be take one year, two years. Three years. For me, it took three years. But now I'm fine again. I will, I will not say that you will be a happy person. No, but you will be fine. You have a future, right? Exactly. You have a future. Yeah, you can build everything again from zero. I know how much is difficult, but you can. If you have this power in your mind that, hey, I don't want to stay home. I want to do something for myself, not for people, no, just for myself. You can do it beautiful words and Marwa what do you think it was for you that got you in those three years from those difficult times to now being so positive how did you do that I think it's because I had a lot of supporting from my family that was the first things they really give me a lot of supporting and also my friends uh, all of them they was holding my hand and my back and show me that I can do it again. And this was really so important because 
alone, no one can do it. It's really so difficult and it's really so hard. No one can do it alone. Always need supporting. Do you feel like you are at home in Germany? 100%. 100%. With, with everything, actually, with the, with the nice people, with a lot of respect. If you are sitting in a wheelchair, if you have a disability or something like this in Syria, you will not always have respect from people. And this is really so bad. But here, all of them, till now, also till three and a half years, I never met a person who tell me, you cannot have a job because you are sitting in a wheelchair or you cannot uh, have a normal life because you are sitting in a wheelchair. No. Every time I meet new people who always are trying to support me and find a way to me, to study again or start to find a job or start to just have a normal life, to have a friend, new neighbor. It's just like this. Good. I'm so happy to hear that. And it's the way it should be, right? I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that's your experience. Do you have any final messages that you want people to know who are listening to this about the challenges that you have faced coming from Syria, having a disability, is there anything else that you want to share with someone listening? I think yeah, I, I need to, to just say something. I don't know actually how I can say it in English in, in a really a good way, but don't be shy or shame or you feel that it's not uh, fine to cry or it's not fine to be sad. That's completely normal. You'll cry maybe for a few years. Don't say that I'm fine because when we always say that I'm fine, but we know inside ourselves we are not fine. And that's make it more problem for us because we are not opening about what we had or what we have now. And this is really important to let everything going out. Don't put it just in yourself. Maybe you will cry in the night or in the morning it's fine just to cry if you feel that you want to cry but after when you cry you after you finish you will feel that you are a strong person and you are a different person you are an amazing person you have a message to say it for people because the normal people they don't know how much it's difficult they don't know it but you know it and you can make a difference. Thank you so much. Honestly, you're a complete inspiration and it's it's just, I'm very grateful to you for sharing your story today. I think it's very important that everybody hears this and I wish I could meet you in person. Hopefully one day I can come back to Heidelberg. You are always welcome here. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving me to talk and uh, sharing my story. To connect with Nujin and Marwa, I have linked their Instagram pages in the description of this episode. To find out more about humanity and inclusion and the incredible work that they do to support people with disabilities, I have included their website and social media accounts there too. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and buy a t-shirt or hoodie or donate. All the details are also in the podcast description and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe.
shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.